0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company, affiliates, and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations. And now, an ad from Dad. <clears throat> all right, save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's what well made. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations.
1: This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVergilio. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Oh my now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs.
0: That was an insane asylum in the swamp. What up, Gator Nation? I'm Alan Williams, right here next to James D. Virgilio. We're going to break down everything about this huge Gators win against LSU.
1: James, thanks some people. Thanks some people right out of the gate. I like that. Uh, of course, Alan, what you're referring to are our patrons on Patreon. Uh, as always, if you like the content on the show, like us on Facebook. And certainly, if the spirit moves you, become a patron on Patreon. You can find links to Patreon on any one of our handles on any of our social media outlets. And we had a bunch of new patrons, Alan, this past week we'd like to thank. We had a couple new large donors. Uh, Mark Mitchell, Diego Rivera, longtime supporter, moving up from a medium dono to a large dono. And then Bill Hood going from small dono to solid large dono. Thanks so much, Bill. Appreciate that. And then, a, and then a couple other new medium donos, Travuse White, formerly and also known as Travis, but to us, to Alan and I, he's Travuse. Good to hear from you, Bud. Russell Hall coming in in the medium dono. Thanks so much. And then some small donos: Ben Coppinger, longtime friend of the program; uh, Michael Varley; Micah Pounders. I think Micah's been with us from the beginning as a supporter. Derek Barfield, David Piscatelli, Donnie Mathis, Cody Flitcraft. Thank you so much, guys, for joining. We appreciate your patronage. And last, of course, but certainly not least, we have to mention our top supporter, still the undisputed champion of the world, Alexander Leventhal. Love that guy. Looking forward to meeting him one day. Oh, he's a good dude. Yeah, he's a good dude. Works for a company here in Gainesville. We can't reveal anything else about him. But uh, at any rate, thanks again, Alexander and friends of Alexander. Thank you guys, too. We appreciate it. All right. With that out of the way, let's get to our opening thoughts. So, Alan, you predicted this victory. I predicted us to have a loss. This game was... Pretty much, I think, how we thought it was going to go. It was a coin flip game. It was very close to similar teams fighting. Uh, not to pat ourselves on the back here, but we sort of nailed our keys to victory again this season. We're on a roll. So mine was that we needed to get consistent pressure on Joe Burrow. We finished this game with five sacks, and we were living in the backfield on passing downs. Made a big difference in the game. Uh, Alan, yours was a little bit more obscure, but it was, it was true. So we knew that they wanted to take shots downfield. They opened the game hitting one right away. It didn't look so good for us, uh, but you wanted to limit big passing plays against us. You thought the game might've been decided on the perimeter. And in a way it it was, we hit more downfield passes than they did. And that certainly had a large influence on the game. Alan, general opening thoughts before we tackle what I think is the, the meta question for this week's game.
0: Yeah, it was really such a fun game to watch and to analyze and yeah, I, I predict us to to win. You predict us to lose. But I, I think I remember you saying there's a there were a large variety of outcomes for this game. And it was going to be really close. And that Florida LSU is always, as someone said on the internet this week, a demolition derby. It's going to be crazy, chaotic. You don't know who's going to come out on top or when you're going to get shot out of your car. But in the end, it's going to be awesome and fun and memorable. And it certainly was that. Before we get to some of these questions, let me let's ask about the atmosphere. Uh, some people are saying this is the most fun the swamp has been since they can recall, maybe since Ole Miss a couple of years ago. Would you agree with that assessment?
1: Yeah, that's definitely true, and that bar is not exactly very high. But a couple of things of note: the pregame atmosphere was was better. This is not the pregame atmosphere of old. This is not the Spurrier atmosphere. This is certainly not even the Urban Meyer atmosphere. But there was a a notable uptick in excitement outside the stadium. LSU did not travel well at all for this game, which was a bit curious. It took a little bit away from the atmosphere for me. A lot of times the LSU fans are very rowdy outside the same. They were not really here. I can't, I don't, I don't get that one per se. I feel like they'd be somewhat excited about the start they had to this season. But inside the swamp, it was great. A lot of credit goes to Dan Mullen. He's done a lot of very intentional things to improve the game day experience that I'm gonna be excited to talk about. One of which was just how often we're playing music now in between plays. If you were in the stadium, you may have noticed that there were probably five to six times more songs being played in this game, uh, which is which is how things used to be once upon a time. But really, the stadium had gone a little bit more quiet energy-wise. That's an that's an on-purpose focus uh for Dan Mullen. And of course, that iconic moment sort of refires the crowd up uh, to just kind of teach the Gator fans again what it's like to be a Gator fan. You know, for a long time you didn't had you didn't have to encourage the fans to to cheer the whole game or recognize a big moment or pick your team up. It was there, but we're a little sluggish, and I think that you can forgive all of us for that. We're a little slow to jump on the. The noise train. But the atmosphere was excellent. You can hear it in my voice. I can hear it in your voice, Alan. Yeah. Uh, we, we spent a lot of time vocally supporting the team and celebrating big moments. And and it was very, very fun. Before I get your take on it, I want to I lay one criticism at the feet of the patrons in the swamp. And that is the student section. I could not be more disappointed. And I'm going to go Nick Saban here with the Florida student section. <laughs> what, what's the deal, Florida student section? I mean, there were... How many thousands of seats, I think, is a safe estimate that were empty in the stadium yet again? What else are you doing on a Saturday in your college career that you're not going to come to the swamp when you're playing a ranked LSU team for four hours of your life to experience an atmosphere that you cannot recreate when you get a game like that? You cannot recreate that. It's a pseudo-spiritual experience to be in the environment like that. And, and what are you doing? Are you at home? Are you on Instagram? Are you on Tinder? I mean, what is happening? Come to the stadium and and, and fill the bleachers over there. It's disappointing it's embarrassing. Frankly, as a student who lived in a full student section throughout Spurrier and Zook era, it's just sad for me to see the state of where our students are. And I'm hoping that with a game like this, things will get picked up. But we don't have a home game again for another month. So all in all, amazing atmosphere. Very excited. Very disappointed with our student section. This has got to be so much better. There was a time when the students carried that stadium. And now it seems like uh, they're sort of being babysat by, by us, by the ones that know how to make it a good atmosphere.
0: Well, we'll see how this win translates down the line for all the fan base, like you said. But it was raucous in there. It was so loud in big moments. And then after the Brad Stewart interception, I mean, just an old school mosh pit in the stadium. I mean, hats and glasses getting knocked everywhere. Water getting thrown up in the air. I mean, it, it was incredible. That was such a fun moment. And like you said, you can't replicate that type of experience watching on TV. Now, there's a lot of pros to watching on TV. We can get into fan dynamics and that stuff. But so much fun. Really thankful that I was able to be there. And yeah, hopefully, there's going to be a lot more of those moments in the swamp. Maybe not this year, because I don't know if we have that type of team coming in, but next year, there's some big ones on the schedule. And can we
1: please, Alan, get some improved speakers in the swamp? Yeah, it is I'll, I'll talk to Scott. Continually about that. disgraceful that we have like the worst speaker system. They can't ever hear what's being said can't on the field. can't hear or... anything. I mean, somebody get on that. All right, let's do what we do best. Let's unpack what happened in this game. And let's start by asking what I think is the most important question as a takeaway. So we're going to start with the end of the movie here. Is LSU overrated or are we that good? I think a little bit of both. I th- I think like most people thought that
0: LSU wasn't really the number five team in the nation. They had some impressive wins. So that's why they're there in the poll. So a little bit of them being a paper tiger, if you'll excuse the pun. But I think that we were more impressive than I expected us to be. They were kind of who I thought they were, or hoping that they were, and we played well. I think in general, we were the better team on Saturday. There's a lot of moments, if we had picked up those third and short conversions that we had several opportunities to pick up, or we came inches away from a first down, maybe we put even more pressure on them, and the game is even a wider result. I There was certainly... Most of the game I felt in danger, but I never thought that we are so overmatched and we're going to have to have a miracle. Felt like if we execute and we can take advantage of our opportunities, we're the better team. I feel like we should win. Did you come away feeling the same way?
1: I felt like this one exactly like we thought it would, like I thought it would. It'd be a close game where if you played the game 100 times, you probably get fifty. LSU wins and fifty Florida wins and you get a bunch of different variations at the end. And we happen to win this one, which is important. Don't take anything away from that. This is the one game that was played and we won that one. But I, I don't I don't think I saw anything on film last week to indicate LSU was a top five team. We said that. In fact, if you if you go back and listen to the pod last week, I think the exact thing we said, Alan, was these two teams are almost entirely equally matched, and LSU is probably slightly better. I think that's true. LSU had to overcome a a ruckus home environment for us, and they were winning that game in the fourth quarter. So I think you can look at back and forth and other things. LSU came out, could have dominated us early on. A lot of narratives there where you could still say LSU was maybe the slightly better team, but regardless, these were very evenly matched teams. And maybe surprisingly, one thing I didn't take away from this game is that LSU was not poorly coached. So the Ed Orgeron experience seems to be working with kind of removing him from from coaching the team in a certain subset. In years past, there's just a lot of bonehead things you can point to. I had a hard time in this game while watching it live and on film, looking at it and thinking, "Wow, that was a horrible decision." Nothing was brilliant, I wasn't very creative, but I think the bar for me and Ed O is so low that looking at it, it was like it was a competent performance from LSU. It was two competent teams that aren't great and have deficiencies playing a very entertaining game.
0: Yeah. But if you're an LSU fan, this just seems like a, a slightly updated less miles team and you fired him. So yeah, maybe not sunk to the bottoms that they, that people feared with Edo, but it doesn't feel like he's going to move them towards a championship. This feels like kind of peak performance. LSU, maybe a little bit better if they have some of their key players healthy maybe a little bit better running game. I don't know, though. I mean, they're not doing anything interesting, that's for sure. But maybe that's enough for right now, but I, I don't see them getting much past that.
1: Yeah, the relative bar there is Edo versus himself. And it surprised me that Edo was better than his normal self. Uh, okay, I'm certainly you. not suggesting that Edo is actually doing a good job coaching, nor would I want him as my coach at LSU. But all in all, he wasn't doing things that – uh you know some other coaches in the SEC in the past like our own would have done in games like that. So that's a step above for, I thought, the level he was at. All right, on offense, Alan, how were we successful in, in your opinion? And th- th- there's probably not a smoking gun answer to this. There's a couple of answers to this one, but how do you think we were most successful and able to manufacture points in this game? This is a weird way to talk about success, but
0: again, minimizing our weaknesses. The fact that we didn't, have a bunch of turnovers that we weren't, I don't know, we didn't gamble too much. We moved the ball at least a little bit on every drive seemingly. Um, I don't know. We didn't put ourselves in bad positions for the most part. And so it's hard to say, like you said, one thing. Now I think we did a lot of things. Okay. We ran the ball. Okay. We hit some plays downfield enough. Now, what they were presenting to us was opportunities to make big plays a lot. If we could beat them one-on-one down the field and we could make the right throw. We did it some, sometimes when we got desperate and we did it or we needed a big play, but it wasn't like, you know, here's all of our awesome, you know, schemes and here's all of our awesome players and we just trashed them. Um, I think the coaching staff did a good job of, of, again, tailoring our offense to what Frankson can do and what our offensive line can do and not asking them to do the things they can't do. What about you?
1: Yeah, Managing the resources of this team would have been and is paramount. And we said that before the season. We expected Dan Mullen to be good at this. We haven't seen our previous coaching staffs be good at this at all. We are seeing that. And it's going to come down to the same things we've mentioned in the past couple of weeks. This is probably going to continue throughout the season, but the game plan and the play calling were the two largest determinants of why we were successful. Play calling. Uh, excellent. We'll talk about that. And the game plan was very different from last week's game plan, which if you listen to our show last week, you heard us say that LSU is going to play a lot of cover one. So one safety and then man to man against our receivers, which is not going to leave us opportunities for easy throws and or especially bubble screens. We had no bubble screens in the. We game. did not even attempt a single bubble screen, and so what that tells you is: a Dan Mullen and the staff understand offense, something that we have not seen under the Will Muschamp era or the Jim McElwain era. Something we expected to see now, and b they're able to actually manufacture. We're averaging thirty points a game, Allen. Certainly, the defense is doing a lot of that with turnovers, but regardless, we're scoring thirty points a game with what is a, in my opinion, completely broken offense. This is this is a brilliant job of taking some talented guys on an offense that just really isn't going to become a well-oiled machine led by a trigger man. Who's just not very good and beating teams that are equal to you. If not, maybe even more talented than you by, by just outsmarting them. And so a couple of things to highlight here, we did for the first time, I think all year, Alan generate some actual running lanes. There seems to be a real benefit from our offensive line going up against a three, four every single day in practice. We are far less confused. We give up zero sacks in this game, Alan. And in reality, Franks was under duress a couple of times. And we did not expect him to be under our ton of duress because LSU's defensive line is not very good. But in previous years, if we played a 3-4 defense, it's like we had no idea what was happening. We were very competently prepared for that. Then you get these nice little plays. So last week we had the bubble screen. This past weekend, let's call it the speed option. We, yeah, we ran it last week too. It was great. We've been running it, but this one we carried I think two or three times in this game, yeah. hit huge yards on it. Called it in a very crucial situation, mm-hmm. late in the fourth quarter to steal 15-20 yards on that. And that was something we absolutely saw on film. We mentioned that LSU will stay very vanilla because they play so much man that they're going to keep an extra linebacker in the box. And essentially what we did on those speed options if you're wondering why that worked, uh, LSU would occasionally be in an unbalanced formation to match our unbalanced offensive formation. And if they did that, we knew that we could run the speed option to the short side of the field with a one man advantage. So it essentially put us R four, including Frank's the quarterback versus their three. And we hit that every single time we attempted it. That's extremely good game planning. Of course, also, you know, it's also good uh, play calling at the right time, but that is the kind of stuff that's winning us games right now. Those plays are really important for us. Stealing 20 yards is very difficult for this team. And when you're manufacturing it with your formation and your personnel, you're really, really, really ahead of the curve. So I could not be more pleased with how we're managing what I continue to think is a broken roster and and how well Alan Mullen is doing, understanding the limitations of this team. He is not trying to make Franks something that he probably simply cannot be. And that is smart. That's smart. You're not going to hear me say, hey, I want to do these things. Why aren't we throwing these routes? Why aren't we doing these things? Because I, along with Mullen, think that Franks is absolutely not capable of doing it. It takes a lot of restraint, though, to make that happen. So I can't heap enough praise upon the offensive staff for staying within themselves, keeping ourselves in games, and finding very creative ways to score points.
0: It's been really nice to see as well, like you said, the situational play calling. This is something that Chris Musgrove, when he, you know, Substitute for you that week talked about Mullen as a red zone play caller. And I feel like we've had to basically manufacture points through creative play calling inside the 10. And it's weird. I'm pretty confident when we get inside the 10 that we're going to do something to put ourselves in position to score. Now, maybe something bad happens and we don't doesn't work. But generally, we've scored when we've gotten close and we've taken advantage of those opportunities. Uh, So you can talk about the crawl pass or Whatever else that's gone on the last couple of weeks, you know, there was a great run design to get P. Ryan on the first touchdown. And so I've got to say, you know, normally I don't like to point to play calling as like why you win or lose. But in those really crucial situations, we seem to be pushing all the right
1: buttons. And that's giving us an advantage over the other team. Yeah. Specifically, if you look at a couple of play calls in this game, you mentioned the curl to Frank's pass. We've had a lot of success getting inside that 20, 25 yard line and running a trick play there. And hitting it, which is crucial. I think that's where Franks proves he struggles. It's much harder when you're an inexperienced quarterback to throw the ball into the end zone there. He threw a very crucial pick at a crucial time in this game. One of the few times he got pressured on first down in that same situation. And that's why I think we look to steal touchdowns in that area of the field. So, again, very smart managing his limitations there. And on the fourth quarter, there was a couple of really interesting plays that happened. One was a speed option, and right after that, uh two plays later, it was a th- we faced a third and seven. This was this was crazy and, huge. This was amazing. And we had an eight versus six, so our eight versus their six in the run game, which we actually had in the second quarter, Allen, and did not get it, handed it off to Scarlet, got tackled, uh, or P Ryan, one or the other. And in this one, we ran it with Franks and got it. And I think that un- that shows you an understanding that when you get a matchup like that, you have got to be able to win. You've got to be able to win. You cannot have Franks throwing into a three-man advantage defensive pass box and expect any kind of good things to happen. You have to steal those kind of plays. I applaud the staff for recognizing that if it, if it is eight versus 8-6, we have got to win those battles. And it takes a lot of cojones to do it in that situation because we talked about Penn State doing that against Ohio State when the game was on the line and losing the game, right? And this example was a brilliant play call. So there are certain times that are right for it. LSU absolutely did not expect that at all. It was the perfect time to call that wonderful scenario. That leads to us scoring a touchdown. That's a huge moment in the game, and it cannot be overstated that the, the coaching staff is ready for that situation. Now, on a play calling note here, Alan. With six minutes left to go, we get the ball back. We run the ball six or seven or eight, however many it was, straight times in a row before punting with two minutes and 30 seconds or so left. Did you like the sequence of plays there? Did you feel like it was going to be too early to take the air out of the ball? We did get some first downs, but what was your feeling at that point in time in the game? We're only up by one point there. It's hard to say. Now, if we had
0: gone three and out, I would have been very critical. But the fact that we were able to move the ball down the field and then get a great punt and flip the field – I'm okay with it. Cause we kept picking up those third downs that we weren't picking up at key points previously in the game. So, and I'll give props to Jordan Scarlett who I don't know if he had a great game, but he ran exceptionally hard picking up the tough yardage, spinning out of tackles, you know, burring his way to get over that first down marker. So I, I was fine. I would, that's actually my preference. If we could run the ball nine times in a row, eat the clock, you know, over the likes to kept the ball, obviously, but, Yeah, in that situation, if you go so conservative that it fails you, that's frustrating. I would have rather, you know, us be more aggressive and pick up first downs. But the fact that we did pick them up,
1: I'll say that's the best of all scenarios. Yeah, it's interesting for me. So we picked up the first two, and then I felt like if there was ever a down to pass it, it's this one. LSU loads the box, brings the safety downhill. I felt like in that moment, we really violated the proper offensive play call. I wonder if Mullen doesn't look back on the tape and think, I, I should have done Yeah, we threw again. it on yeah. second down.
0: We really should have done it on first down. Yeah,
1: time. should have done something down there. They sold out to stop the run. They, LSU basically said, we'll tolerate losing on this play right here because we're not going to let you run for four yards on first down. And they didn't. We lost. We lost two yards. I feel like that should have been a pass, even if it's a little bit scary to call it. But that was the right time. Then on second down, we get the same exact look which was good for them to recognize. I think that's why they knew it. They knew the look was great on first down. And really, we should have completed that. But LSU was more ready for the pass there. They get their hand up in the passing, they block it down, whatever the case is. But I want to note that because that was a time in the game on film where it was very clear that the numbers was vastly advantaged in the passing game. And really, you should do it there. That's the right time to do it. You can can win the game outright with that moment. And we have
0: the wide receivers to take advantage of that. We're not like, you know, running
1: just tight ends up the middle or anything. Correct. And so I I think that was a a coaching decision I would look at and say, you run at the first two sequences of first downs and you're getting the first downs great. But then when you see what just happened in that drive and you kind of know game theory wise, you have to expect your opponents not going to let you do it again. Their backs against the wall. If you get one more first down, the game is basically over. That is the absolute right time for the pass. Something to look at going forward. I don't think we got – Maybe overly conservative because we did pass it on second down, but we, we got the game theory of that wrong. Those, that was the wrong sequence of events, and I think Mullen almost certainly knows that. Okay, so we've talked about some good things on an offense. We talked about some crucial drives, some big moments in the game. Where did we struggle overall? The yardage output was fine. We didn't throw for a lot of passing yards. We wound up rushing for over 200, which is sort of manufactured. Uh, but you know, where did we struggle in this game? I would have liked to see us be a little more aggressive against
0: that, you know, cover one when you have Van Jefferson, Tyree Cleveland. I mean, we got the pass interference against um, one of their D backs against Cleveland and basically had to pull him down to save a touchdown, which was smart by him. That was open. None of those guys are going to be able to keep up with Cleveland, especially, I mean, maybe greedy Williams, but if you get the right matchup over there, You know, and you make a good throw. Now, obviously, it's risky. It's more likely you're going to get picked off. But I think Franks obviously has the arm to get it at least – like you're not going to throw it short and have a jump ball necessarily. I would like to see us challenge that a little bit more because we weren't able to execute some of the stuff that we normally do, like our swing passes, like some of our runs that I think were successful against Mississippi State. I don't know. That wasn't obviously the game plan to put the ball in the hands of Franks. And say, all right, you're just gonna have to sling it down the field. But there were probably more moments where we could have taken advantage of that.
1: I think that's that's the right look, and I, I feel like after the first half, we knew we had to do that. So we take that shot right out of the gate, and we hit it to Hammond, uh, which is a great way to open the second half before throwing the pick, which was another another good pass play that would have been a touchdown. He had Mortal Stevens on a slant on a on a post, a skinny post. Really nice route trailing the receiver on the outside. So they're they're going to get into what would be called like a, a two-on-one against the safety look. So the wide receiver goes first and then the tight end follows behind him. And then the wide receiver will either go to the corner, which in this case he did. And then you have your trail receiver, Mortal Stevens. He runs a post underneath. Really easy throw. Very simple play. Franks gets pressure in his face. I think maybe even forgets where he's supposed to throw the ball. Honestly. It was awful. And lobs one in the end zone to a cover one safety that was not even going to. I mean, he could have lobbed the ball. Anywhere along the post route is going to be a touchdown. Uh, So very, very poor. But LSU was begging us to throw this ball for most of the game. There are multiple opportunities. And we had a two-on-two with a single high safety on the wide side of the field. And I felt like on film, our receivers were winning these battles. They were beating LSU's DBs deep almost whenever they wanted. And I continue to believe, Alan, there is not a single DB that can stay with Cleveland on a go route. I don't think it can happen. How we're not trying that at least two or three times a game seems like a failure to me. I know why. I think when you play teams like Georgia or other teams like that, if they give us opportunities to throw deep, we will probably be a little more aggressive because we have to score more. The game plan here was to stay in the game until the end. uh, And we were aggressive more at times with that. But more importantly, and I want to transition this to a little Frank's discussion here, Alan. More importantly, Frank's finishes the game 12 of 27 for 161 with one pick and one touchdown. And in reality, a guy with Frank's skill set with a coach who trusted him should put up a huge number against an LSU team that wants to run press man cover one, but we can't because he's not capable of that. So that hamstrings us a little bit. So what I want to reiterate here without getting too long into a Frank's discussion is that Frank's did some good things in this game. The pass due to Hammond, first read pass on the money, early touchdown we got there in the uh, the second quarter, I believe. Uh, that was an excellent first read throw into a window. Very, very nice. He continues to do well. The Van Jefferson back shoulder throw might have been one of the best throws of his career in a high leverage moment down in the fourth quarter. Really, really good throw. Uh, actually, probably a second read there. Um, So that was really, really nice. But outside of those couple of throws, the couple of deep ball throws, Franks to me on film shows that he hasn't gotten any better at all, but the coaches have continually gotten better and better at managing his deficiencies. And so I think in this game, we had time to throw the ball deep. We actually had it. We have not had time. We had time in this game. Didn't try it out. And I'm going to say primarily it's because The way our defense was playing, I think, gave the coaching staff the confidence to keep it. Let's see if we can save some of our best stuff for the end and win this game late. Because you just still don't know what Franks is going to do. But as a meta-narrative, Alan, if any of you out there think we have a shot of beating a real team, a Georgia, a Bama, pick whoever you like across the country, uh, it's really unlikely at this point in time. Because we still can't really beat basic defenses with our quarterback play when you can't steal wins against everyone. You can't do it. We're doing it well thus far, but I, I'm saying that to put a little cap on Frank's Frank's is what he is. And I, I'm not sure it's going to change, but so far huge takeaway for me is how well we've managed a, a relatively pedestrian quarterback to get these wins. I cannot say enough about that. That is not an easy thing to do. It shows a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of excellent understanding of how to win football games with your resources.
0: I think it's probably a little bit of both there. I think you're right that the coaches, you know, wanted to keep us in the game, didn't want to do something that would blow the game wide open early on, especially when LSU had a lot of momentum. I'd be interested if if they got into a situation where they felt like it wasn't relatively equal. That maybe that we're mostly as good as Mississippi State or LSU, but if we got in a situation versus a Georgia or Obama or maybe a Clemson, like you said, whoever you like, whether they might say our best avenue to win is high variance. Let's throw the ball down the field. Franks can throw it all the way down the field. Let's let Jefferson and Cleveland try to come up with it. And there is a path to success with that. Obviously a lot of inherent risk, a lot of failure in that because that's a a harder you know level of, a higher level of competence needed to make those plays cons- consistently. But maybe we will be a little more aggressive. I don't know if they trust the offensive line to hold the pocket for him to make those kind of throws unless they scheme it with double tight ends or max protect in one route out there, which you might see some more of that later on too.
1: Let's look at the defense. The defense had an interesting game, some really high moments, some other moments that were a little bit lower. When and how did LSU have success against us?
0: Well, I don't think it usually comes down to just personnel, but right now where we're at with our roster it kind of does. If you, if you notice, C.J. Williams, number 12, started the game for us. I, I'm not sure why he was starting. Um, maybe that disciplinary issue. Maybe they wanted to not expose Trey Dean, freshman. But when Williams was out there, or Mick Williams was out there, he got burnt. Either he was in the wrong place, giving too much leverage, or just getting straight up beat down the field. Um there's a, a sequence when I, I assume Henderson's helmet got broken or something. He had to go leave the field. He was gone for two plays. I was terrified. And they immediately threw at him. Now, the wide receiver stopped his route or else that would have been a huge play. And then, you know, you see Henderson coming back in. It's like, okay, I can breathe again. I thought Trey Dean acquitted himself really nicely. We've, you know, especially for a freshman, they're not able to pick on him. They don't go, oh, that guy's in the game. Let's throw at him immediately. So he's obviously putting some good stuff down in film. And then, gosh, I I hate to bring it up every week. I look over, I notice number 44 is in the game, Jackson. And immediately they rip off two big run plays because he's getting washed up in blocks or he's not in the right spot. Um, I'm sure it doesn't come down just to him. But you know what? The data would suggest when David Reese is not in there, we struggle. And when he is in there, for the most part, we do well. Um, That really is the case. And so everyone, if you're, you know, If you like to pray, pray that uh, Henderson and Dean do not get injured because we've seen the other side of that. Now, Dean, I mean, that's huge that he's been a serviceable replacement to Marco Wilson. But yeah, if either one of those two guys go out, apparently, you know, the floor is all the way down in the basement. Um, And James, I know we ended up in some different schematic um, fronts that limited us as well that you noticed.
1: Yeah, so we came out again in a, in a true 3-4 look. So we had three down linemen, primarily with Jeremiah Moon, number seven, playing the linebacker that's on the line. And in that first drive and in the second drive, they took they took advantage of that. They were able to move the ball on us. Of course, they had the big pass early, which is something you would have heard on this podcast last week when I said, what does Joe Burrow love to do? He loves to throw the outside go route when we have one-on-one press coverage. He hit that. So they kind of got everything they wanted in the beginning of the game. Uh, it was nothing that we did not expect. In fact, everything they did were things they've shown all year long. I think we thought we might have had some more success running a more traditional 3-4 front. But so far, Grantham has been exceptionally good at immediately remedying whatever the problem is. So you might get it once on us, but you're not going to get it twice. And there are several examples of this. But one is we switch out CJ McWilliams we recognize that LSU's entire game plan is to abuse him. He's gone. and comes trading. Trading does a great job. Second, we move from our three-down linemen, which really, Allen, has been a struggle for us all year long, which makes sense. All these guys have played a four-man front. It's a transition. We've talked about it. And we went to a four-down lineman set. We're still not running what's called a 4-3 defense. We're still running a 3-4. We're just subbing a linebacker for a defensive end or a defensive uh, tackle, giving us more beef on the line. And we owned LSU for the majority of the game when we had four actual defensive linemen in there. I mean, they could not handle us. That was a huge, huge adjustment in this game, just as it was last week. Very, very crucial. And so I think towards the end of the game, interestingly enough, when they drove right down the field to score, they rip off two big runs. The first run, we came out in a base 3-4. Moon's in the game, rip off a huge 25-30 yard run. The second run, because you get it once, but not twice. The second run, we come out in a 5-2. A 5-2 defense, fully anticipating LSU to run with our best run-stopping package, bringing a safety into the box, and they were off like a 45-yard run. So that that's not that's excellent preparation. That's just an unfortunate play that goes against you. So I think how do we answer this question succinctly? They had success against us primarily because of personnel. I think that remains to be true, including in our base 3-4 defense. Like schematically, it's excellent. We were ready for everything they did. Personnel wise, we just don't quite have the ability to execute, which brings up the question that's going to be with all of us for all of us this whole year is there are some positions where we cannot afford to get an injury or we go from one of the best units in the SEC at generating turnovers to a average or below average defense just incredibly quickly because we don't have the depth. So keep an eye on that. But all in all, LSU had success. I think they had about the the same amount of success we kind of expected them to have against their defense. And in reality, without CJ McWilliams in the game, if Dean plays the whole game, they probably have maybe 100 yards less even of offense. It was that big of a difference.
0: Yeah, and I I noticed the same thing you did, that we got better as the game went on. Can you continue to make more adjustments to what they're doing? Whatever they're doing with Voshan Joseph, he's gotten better every game. I mean, he's like a missile back there. I love watching him. I mean, I think he won defensive player of the week in the SEC, several sacks, tackles for loss, doesn't look as lost in coverage, but they're not asking him to do things that are outside his comfort zone very often. Um, And he's such a speed and power player. Again, we talked about if you, he's a guided missile. If you get him guided in the right direction, he's going to make plays. That was excellent. I love that we were, for the most part, Limiting Joe Burrow's running lanes. Now he beat us a couple times for some big plays, but overall didn't kill us. You know, we we're, were still alive. It hurt us, but we were still alive. And I have to mention, polite. We talk about it every week. The guy's playing himself into I don't know what. All American. We talked about. Can this someone make be an all American on this team? I Apparently, him. He's playing like it. His speed is off the charts. There's a play last week where you see him basically fake on a zone read that he's gonna take the running back and the quarterback keeps it Fitzgerald, and he pivots on a dime, runs straight at him, forces him into throwing the ball out of bounds. You don't see a man that size pivot and run the way he does very often. So if if you have, and he's usually standing up, you can see him. He's number ninety nine is very noticeable. Watch him; he's doing something interesting almost every time. Um, often being double teamed. If he's not, he's sometimes running right around the right tackle. Uh, so got to continue to give him props for just playing out of his mind, really. Game plan
1: wise, this was interesting from Grantham. So we've thrown a lot of pressure at teams the past couple of weeks, all season long. That's, that's Grantham's MO. We were very conservative yeah. in this game. Very conservative. And I think a lot of that has to do with Joe Burrow's favorite throws, which we chronicled very well in this podcast last week. He loves the slant and that sort of dig, and he loves to go fade on the sideline. All three of those throws are blitz beaters. That's what he wants to do. And I have seen this defense put something on film that I think will be interesting to other teams down the road is that we were very complicated with our coverages. We were routinely doing what a 3-4 does best and dropping a lineman into a slant window. We were moving a linebacker from one window to the next window. There was no way Burrow could ever get a true sense of whether or not he had an opportunity to throw a, a uncontested inside breaking route, which he does best by far. That was brilliant by Grantham to recognize that, hey, I don't think Joe Burrow can make all these other throws. I think he makes these two throws really well. Let's take those two away and make him deal with other stuff. Um, really solid, really different from what we've done before. And then he timely used Voshan as sort of a hammer and polite to blitz together, yeah. which was, you know, it was an incredibly effective combo. They each finished with two sacks uh, on on what what tended to be LSU's weak side, the left side of their, their defense, like so to do a lot of rollout action to the right. So just brilliant game planning on film, really well coached. Uh, they hit a big screen play on us in the second quarter, Alan, only to try it again later at a crucial point in the game, and we were completely ready for it. That's just really, really good coaching. So I want to note that on film, the defense is is exceeding, I think, both of our expectations thus far this season. We talked about where they'd be. They're top 25 in a lot of categories. We're top two or three in turnovers generated. Uh, this defense is really opportunistic. And this is not a defense loaded, like you mentioned, with All-American or NFL talent. But they are really getting a lot out of these guys with how they're playing, which is fantastic. Now, we did struggle in a few places, which we chronicled earlier. Uh, Primarily something to look forward for the future. That's how I want to use this is are we able against a team like Georgia or even a team like Vanderbilt, which we'll get to in the second half of this show, which passes the ball more competently than anything we've faced so far. We're going to have to run that more of a base three, four set. Are we able to be as effective thus far this season? We have not been. Now, a guy who's been tremendously effective, Alan, is Chauncey Gardner. What did you see from him in this game? He's been so much better this season. And, you know, he was playing
0: at safety last year, kind of filling in some gaps for us where we were weak. But he seems born to play this nickel position where he can, you know, cover, he can blitz. And, you know, he's become a really sure tackler. I mean, much criticism against him at the beginning of last year for missing a lot of important tackles. I think playing in space is much easier on him than having to, like, fill gaps and come in and, you know, run blitz. Yeah, he's a guy I could also see playing on Sundays. We talked about that. Really love what we've seen from him. Uh, He seems to be always in the right spot at the right time. I watched him as well move over the safety. You know, you saw him at one point, like, kind of going nuts, like, get over here. For a guy playing kind of a new spot where we didn't really have this position. Of course, we had a nickel, but the the types of things that they're asking him to do and the variety of things that we are asking him to do, He's really picked up on it well, and he seems to be helping other people around him get into place, especially with our inexperienced safeties. So, um, yeah, I, I couldn't be more happy with the way he's played so far.
1: Yeah, I feel comfortable now saying that Chauncey Gardner on film looks like an NFL nickelback. Not only does he recognize plays, as you mentioned, he essentially called the exact play LSU was going to run in that game and line up the defense to stop it. He tackles extremely well. He's a blanket coverage-wise. You almost never see his name called because you can't throw a single pass against him. I mean, he is fantastic right now. Uh, just a lot of good stuff coming from him. And a guy that that I obliterated on the podcast earlier in the season, only the next week to give tremendous praise to, has become quite an interesting playmaker on this team, Alan. Is Brad Stewart's notable uptick in production and play, is that indicative of the safety's improving? Or are these just sort of plays he's making each game that are a little more isolated? I want more data
0: out of this, but I'm tempted to say yes, that it's indicative of an overall trend that they're improving. I don't trust the safety group as a whole, but there's three guys back there that I feel good about doing certain things. Um, It's good to have Sean Davis back. Donovan Steiner has his uses. Taylor, I'm still not convinced that he's an SEC caliber player. Stewart is a guy who's a pretty high recruit. And seeing him start to take shape back there, I think, is huge for this defense. Now, he hasn't been put into the kind of positions that some of these passing teams like Missouri or even Georgia could put him in. So I don't want to just put my stamp of approval on him yet, but he's passing the test each week. You know, I I would feel comfortable saying, yes, they're improving, but I, I wouldn't go, yeah, we've solved that position.
1: It seems like on a week-to-week basis that they're improving with the opportunities given to them. But like you mentioned, Alan, what's actually hard as a safety is dealing with with combo routes downfield, which so far, thankfully for us, we have not had to deal with at all. But there's definite improvement, especially when you look at the, the play of the game, if you will, when he picks off Joe Burrow. He's lined up one-on-one. He knows that we're not blitzing, but we're going to make it look like we're blitzing. And he knows that he has help on the inside. So that, first of all, the scheme is perfect for this play call. We have got, uh, I think CC Jefferson drops into the slant window. So Brad Stewart knows he needs to be super aggressive on the out route. He knows he can jump the out route because he has help. As soon as he sees the out route, he jumps it. These are all really important understanding in a defense. It's very easy for a young guy, uh, and Brad's not super young, but for an inexperienced guy rather, to get in a situation, just, just cover, right? just cover but he knew that his job was to eat any outbreaking route and he did not hesitate and he sealed the game because of it so that's an improvement that's a quickness uh in reaction understanding a film so really really solid but ultimately like you mentioned the jury will be out on these guys until we play a team that can attack the vertical that's where young inexperienced safety to really struggle is when they have to hand off switch uh switch coverages and, and kind of move around on their side of the field lastly with regards to defense allen the last sequence of plays for LSU was pretty interesting. So we sacked them twice when we dropped eight guys into coverage, running a very safe cover three, polite steals one. I think Zuniga steals the other one. uh, And we put them way behind the eight ball. Then on the fourth and 19, we don't rush any more than three and they convert a 19 yard pass for a first down into like quadruple coverage. Interesting that Grantham chose to stay conservative. And then on the next, Series of downs. He didn't change it. He remained with the cover eight. A little surprising to me, especially since Joe Burrow hadn't shown that he was really doing anything downfield. We didn't need to send all eight guys in the blitz, but you probably could have sent two or three or four. Are you surprised that we stayed so conservative towards the end of that game? LSU did drop two passes for a first. Yeah, half. I want
0: to say when I went back and watched it, and you could tell that they were drops in the stands, but they really dropped them. They were those should have been catches. Those were brilliant throws into tight, tight windows. And his rec- receivers let Burrows down. I don't know. Uh, it's hard to say that I would have anticipated Burroughs being able to throw that ball into those windows. So maybe it was the right call and he just beat it. But at the same time, uh, gosh, you know, leaving him back there. If those three guys don't get home and they stop getting home because they started to gas out, then... He's a heady guy. He's going to know where the soft spot is, not whether he can make the throws is another thing. But he did on those
1: occasions. We almost got burnt by it. Yeah, I think game, again, game theory wise, we surprised him the first two drives. He sort of was seeing ghosts that weren't there and he almost scrambled scrambled himself into extra pressure. If it's only a three man rush. You can feel it and you step up and you get out of it. And, you know, it's really not tremendously difficult, even if someone gets beat early. And then I think he recognized we were only going to send three. Uh, and really until that last fourth down where we fainted pressure, we weren't even giving him like a confusing look I'm surprised by that. I think that should be improved again, using, using game theory and leveling. You would expect if I know that Joe Burrow now thinks that I'm only going to send three, cause I've done it three or four times in a row. Now is the time to send something different. Uh, so for what it's worth, I thought that was a, a failure in, in play calling at the end. It worked out. Um, I'm surprised Grant that was as conservative as he was. You can still run a cover three and blitz. You don't have to leave yourself naked in the back end. but uh, all in all, the game ends when Steiner gets a pick, a nice pick to to seal it. And of course we all got to celebrate in the swamp. And then Alan, before we cover special teams, and coaching decisions, they brought the bobbleheads back, which I should have I should have put in her atmosphere, but the little party bobbleheads at the yeah, end which I, like I, I don't I don't know why I like those things so much, but they're they're fantastic. All right, with that note
0: Hold on, before you go to special teams, you're gonna talk about this is not quite a coaching decision, but people this got said on the broadcast, it you know, is relevant. We've talked about it before. If Brad Stewart, you know, runs out of bounds at the, you know, three yard line, we'd probably seal the game, although it would have robbed us of a you know, massive celebration in the swamp. Um, do you think the coaches talked to him about that? Do you think that that's something that would be a coaching point? I mean, is it possible to get a kid to do that, especially when you're not like, hey, they're not anticipating probably
1: him, anyone running in for a touchdown on that particular play? I think that's nearly impossible. Even even guys in the NFL that are veterans for a long time will make that mistake in that situation. I don't know that you can get a kid at home in that atmosphere in that moment to pick the ball off and stop. That's the right move. And if he does stop, then he's incredibly heady. So is the meta move to stop on the two-yard line? Yes, that's definitely the meta move. Because then you run a play, they call timeout. 40 seconds go off, you're at a minute. 40 seconds go off, more, you're at 20 seconds. At that point in time, you can kick a field goal. You can do whatever you want. Uh, and then LSUS to go down the whole field with no timeouts and like twelve seconds left. that's definitely the 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 best thing to do. However, scoring and then eventually going up eight like we did is not bad. Your odds to win there are like ninety nine percent. But if you want to be a purist, purist, going down probably was the better strategy there. Uh it wasn't egregious. However, yeah, I think to answer your question, Alan. You can't teach a guy that in those moments. It's too too much else to think about. You're not saying, hey, this is probably what's going to happen. Too many things to think about. Too many scenarios going on. When he picks it off, he's not totally sure he's going to score. It's not like he's wide out in the open, plenty of time to stop. It's very bang, bang. So nothing wrong with that. But yeah, if you want to look at it purely statistically, sure. You know, downing the one would have been the optimal decision. Special teams has been a joy all year long after last year with the Greg Nord debacle every week, getting on this pod and just being depressed about it. It's been, it's been a game changer. And I don't want to, I want to highlight a guy. I let you highlight a guy Cleveland, not only is he playing offense, running go routes a lot. He's our primary gunner on punt returns. That's big. And, and he has to run an additional 50, 60 yards, beating a guy, which he's routinely beating his man. And even if he does not make the tackle, he's causing the return up take a, a significantly different route. I want to highlight him for his play in this game. I thought he was fantastic all the way until the end uh, being a primary gunner on the punt team. And then, of course, the guy that maybe was a, a sneaky hero of this game. Tommy Time. Tommy Townsend, we've talked about, I
0: don't know if we said on the pod, but we've had conversations about his skill in downing the ball you know, inside the opponent's 10, situational punting, you know, backspin, hang time, that kind of stuff. He continues to do a great job of that. I guess the question marks were, if we need him to, can he rip off a 50, 60 yarder like his big bro? And we openly were questioning him. we're like, you know, can he do that? I don't know. I remember sitting next to you in the second half, praising Tommy Townsend. And you're like, yeah, but can he rip one of these big punts? I think the very next punt shoots one over the guy's head. Huge moment in the game. We definitely needed to flip the field, and he accomplished that for us.
1: His last two punts were were magical. I mean, he hammers that punt, I don't know, 65-70. I think after I had just literally said, I've never seen him kick 160. I don't know if he actually has the leg to do it. And then he finishes the game off with that incredible to it, punt to pin them down to the 15. I was like, thank you, Tommy. Thank you for making me my words. I appreciate that. But excellent work by him. And then, Alan, something you pointed out in the game, we recognized that I would forgotten about it as we are going through the shot sheet today for the pod. McPherson hammered that kickoff after Voshan Joseph did something that I still think is great, even though he got a penalty for it when he, he spent like 10 seconds trying to get the ball from uh, from Brad Stewart who so can punt it into the stands vis-a-vis Brandon Spikes so it was a mm-hmm. little homage, which I loved. We get all these penalties where it kick went back. McPherson hammered that kick. I mean, that that's going to go on the NFL film down to the five. As opposed to having a good field position where they feel like maybe they're kind of going downhill with the wind of their back. They're like, oh, we have to go the entire field. That was a phenomenal kick by him. Yeah, I
0: loved it. I mean, those guys, the coaches put them where like, okay, this is probably even a conservative depth of field for them to field this kickoff. And as soon as he kicked it, immediately goes over the head. Loved it. All right, let's talk about a few other bright spots. We've been to Chauncey Gardner, Voshan, Polite. Before we get to other players, I, you already – tipped our hat on this but the 08 tributes i loved getting to honor that 08 team um i didn't really remember until i looked back but in 08 against lsu we wore the all blues that was obviously planned um and even voshanio you know, <laughs> go back and look at the brandon spikes highlight where he gets an interception runs down there but it doesn't seal the game but we're up like 40 14 at this point punts the ball into the stands Obviously, they had shown Voshan that at some point because he knew immediately what he wanted to do with that ball. Wouldn't really recommend that unless the game is really over, Voshan. But I love the energy and the the shout-out to the O.A. team. Anybody else you want to shout-out there?
1: Tim Tebow came to the Swamp, gave himself a little speech, and apparently if Tim Tebow comes to the Swamp, we win, which was which was nice. Hammond was a guy that I had cited as a breakout player on offense this year, and he had a phenomenal game. His best game of the season. I think he's been open a lot this year. And he did great work out of that slot position. Of course, I just want to re-highlight my boy Voshan. He's continually been my guy. And uh, I love that guy for good reason. This game was no exception. But the most important bright spot in this game for me was Dan Mullen. Dan Mullen won over a lot of Gators on Saturday. And I want to say again that I think I get a lot of, of contact and mail about how I don't like Dan Mullen. It's not the case. In fact, I'm probably the least surprised about where we are with Dan Mullen. I fully expected him to run a competent ship. I will say, though, his ability to have an understanding of the other things that go into a football game is surpassing any expectation I had. And that's necessary at this program. So, all the little things he does from handling the crowd to mastering the details, you got to imagine what the difference is between a veteran coach like him. And an inexperienced coach like McElwain, he's in the middle of, a, of an incredibly competitive game with a rival at home. And he recognizes, wait a minute, the the stadium atmosphere is lacking. I need to do something to fire these guys up. He goes bananas on the sideline, throws off the headset and the visor, gets everyone going absolutely crazy. And Alan, in the beginning of the game, I had a chance to be on the field. I was part of the tunnel that the Gators run through. And the sound system couldn't get working for the Gator Chomp. It's the first time I can recall there not being the Gator Chomp entrance. And you can see Mullen looking around. Mullen starts jumping around like a madman in the tunnel, gets all the players super hyped and just leads them out. And that's something that a veteran coach is capable of doing. So I can't say enough good things about how Mullen handled this game day. I think there's a lot of Gator fans out there that went from feeling in the first quarter like, oh no, LSU is going to crush us. We get a strip sack, the game changes, to by the end of the game thinking, you know, Right now, we don't know what Dan Mullen's ceiling is, but it certainly feels good to have a guy who seems to love to be here, who's rallying the crowd, who understands the importance of the game day atmosphere. It feels good. So I can't say enough about the job he did this past weekend.
0: Yeah, and that's not just him. He's an emotional guy, so he lets out the emotions. I don't think it was fake, but I think he let himself do that in that situation because he knew we needed it. Like you said, training the crowd. You know, that was a big touchdown and it was pretty quiet for a post touchdown kickoff. Now, some of it was the you know TV timeout and stuff, but normally that's a really raucous moment for the crowd. He realized the gap there. And so he let himself celebrate like that. That was a strategic that wasn't I'm out of control and I, I don't can't control my emotions in this moment. Like you said, he's not just thinking like, oh, my gosh, what are we doing this next third down? He's got in mind the big picture of the program even in the middle of a very intense game. Uh, So yeah, I was really encouraged by that too. Not because he's showing emotion, but because of the way he's thinking about our program as a whole.
1: Here is the meta final thought that I'm very interested to hear because I never thought that we would keep having to visit this question, but I'm, I'm glad that we are for all the right reasons. Should we revise our expectations yet again? After the Kentucky game, you went downward. I stayed the same. After the Mississippi State game, you went back up. I stayed the same. (laughs) (laughs) And now, two questions. Should we revise our expectations upward? Of course, I think we both included FSU as a win. So I guess technically I went to eight, but that was sort of a, a nod to a different FSU team. But more importantly, does this win accelerate Mullen's overall timeline? Should we expect him to get someplace faster now that we're achieving what we're achieving?
0: I think to the first one, I don't know if it changes too much. I I felt good coming into the game and I'm feel good come out of it. I think it does accelerate his overall trajectory with some, if it answers certain questions, one that he's going to win at the swamp. That was, you know, a huge hallmark of Spurrier and Mullen that you protect your house kind of a thing. And does this help in recruiting? Does this put us on another platform? Does this, provide some proof of concept that these guys know what they're doing. They're going to be able to turn it around. They're going to be able to win. I don't know if it ups his ceiling, but maybe he gets to where he wants to go faster. I, I do think it does accelerate his timeline. I You can't really say anything negative over the last three game, games. It's, he's been pretty flawless. The Kentucky thing was difficult because it 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 intimated that maybe we were, there was more of that four and eight team in us than we wanted there to be. And if it was true, he got rid of that quick because we're a different team. Now than we were in that Kentucky game. And of course, Kentucky is noticeably better than they usually are. So those two things we have to take into account, but this win where he's gotten this team to win this type of game and have us in position with a win against Vanderbilt that we could challenge for the East. Now that might be a pipe dream. That might be reality, but it's at least a discussion where after the Kentucky game, the discussion was Can this team be bowl eligible? Well, that's in the rearview mirror. And now we're thinking bigger picture, larger horizons. What about you? Does it accelerate his timeline
1: for you? Maybe, maybe, but I'm hesitant to say yes to this. And here's the reason why we know <clears throat> data wise, without a doubt, that the coach's first season as bad as Frost is doing at Nebraska or Chip Kelly at UCLA or Kirby Smart did at Georgia in year one, it tends to have little bearing on how well you do in your recruiting class the next year. It just is the way that it is. It's something you have to accept, whether you think that there's bag men or it's whether your state's really talented. It's just a reality. This should make it easier, Alan, for us to pull in other recruits. It should make it easier. But recruiting is a very mystical beast. It's a fickle mistress. Very fickle mistress. And I still, as I said, the day we hired him, have that question remaining. If Dan Mullen can recruit top five talent, you will hear me come on this podcast and say, Dan Mullen is different than I thought he was. The reason I feel like Dan Mullen's ceiling is what it is. is I don't think from what I've seen, he's going to be able to recruit that talent. And I don't know that his style of offense will work against the elite teams. Those two questions we have not answered yet, but... But there's no doubt the program has momentum. This doesn't feel as momentous as the Will Greer time because Will Greer was transcendent at quarterback, but it feels similar. And then all of a sudden, it's like, hey, we're competent. We're not going to crush you this year, but you're not going to beat us easily. And we know what we're doing. We've got momentum going here. I'm a coach knows what's going on. And in the SEC East, we certainly look a whole lot better than everyone else does minus Georgia. Kentucky's on the upswing. but they can't compete with us. That's big, right? That's strong. Florida State. Looks horrible in the state. Miami is is not compelling yet. They're going to keep getting better, but you can make narratives. This was huge at this point in time for Dan Mullen. I don't want to make too much of it though, because that's just not how recruiting works. So I'm going to say it does not accelerate the timeline for me. I think it's the same. I would say that about any coach, including Scott Frost or others. You have the three years. This should help. This is big. This definitely helps Allen because most of all, I think the fans feel good for the first time since the old Miss win, and then the the gut punch that was the Wilger suspension. It's been a long time since we've got to feel the way we're feeling right now. And that's awesome. And that's all the credit to Mullen. And hopefully the recruits, the program, the players, that carries over to their efforts to get the program from where it is now to where it needs to get to. And we're all wishing for that to happen.
0: So, yeah, not just recruiting, although that's a certain piece, but the overall momentum and feeling, like you said, the fans, the players, the buy-in – All that maybe gets accelerated slightly, not like we turned a corner here and we were going to be bad and now we're going to be good, but all the things that he wants to accomplish, maybe he's one step closer than he thought he would be at this point in this year. Okay, James, let's do some national game recaps. We'll start with a very interesting game. Two teams still to come on the Gator schedule, Missouri 35, South Carolina 37.
1: This is a great win for Will Muschamp and a surprising win. I I was a believer in Missouri. I thought they were good. Their offense is very good, I think, as they proved in this game. This is a very good offense. They're going to give us problems when we play them. I did not think South Carolina was going to win this one, especially without Jake Bentley. So this is an excellent result for South Carolina. I don't think you feel great about yourself as South Carolina beating Missouri 37-35, but truly... This is a very good result, given what happened for them. Uh, And and what I want to say is my main narrative for all the rest of these games we go through. I like to bet on games for fun. A little bit of money each week. You pick some. I've done very well. And then you can see each week we do these, Alan, that Vegas gets like a vice grip. A lot of these lines were crazy close to what they actually wound up being. And they know it. So USC was there by one in this game, and they went by two. But at any rate, big game for Will Muschamp. I think most South Carolina fans are already off the bandwagon. But this was a good win for them.
0: Yeah, decent win. I, I think it's probably would have been a nice win either way. I don't think either of these teams look at Georgia and they're going to go, well, we're going to challenge for the East, and now Florida is at least competitive. But when you're at that stage of they're at, every win is compelling, especially against a team at your level. Okay, West Virginia, 38, and kind of a disappointing performance, Kansas, 22.
1: Yeah, very disappointing performance from West Virginia. Will Greer throws three picks. They're favored to win by 26.5 points or whatever the case was. Key takeaway here is uh, here is that West Virginia had a bad game against an overmatched opponent. And Kansas truly is improving. For the first time in maybe, I don't even know, since uh, the man Genius was there for one year where he was good, right? <laughs> The first time since then that they actually are getting better. So good for Kansas to be kind of relevant in the college football. Competitive, role. like not a total total doormat. How many red zone
0: picks did Wilger have?
1: I think it was all of his picks, right? Like all three. Four, three, three or yeah, four? I think it was three. Either way, the score could have been way more lopsided. Right. but they they struggled in the red zone. Not a
0: game he's going to want to put on his Heisman tape. Okay, another very close game: BC
1: twenty-three, NC State twenty-eight. If anyone watches the ACC, I guess they would know what happened in this game. (laughs) I did not see a single second, so I can't comment other than to say we expected these two teams to be close to each other. NC State is one of the better teams in the ACC. So if you look at a team that, that could maybe upset, I don't know, Clemson or someone else, you could look at NC State. They're competent. They're good. They're
0: intriguing. They're well coached. I thought Dave Dorn would have been a terrible hire at Tennessee, but maybe not. Maybe he's the guy you're going to see at a bigger job soon. Okay. <laughs> uh, a fun result. FSU 27, Miami 28. If you weren't tracking this game, I believe FSU was up 27 to 7. And as you see, Miami one by one, quite nice.
1: I did not get to watch any of this game except for like the last minute when Miami was kneeling it down at FSU's goal line. And it's great. I, we were in the stadium looking at it thinking, what? Why is Florida State beating Miami like They're that? They're going to steal another one. No, don't let them steal more wins. And instead, they, they stole a defeat, which is uh, <laughs> which is fantastic. I saw on, I think, Miami's Twitter, Instagram or something that they had a little hurricane locker on the backpack and it said, "Turnover backpack secured or something ridiculous. But uh, I love it. I, I do not want FSU to be good ever again. I'm content with them being a doormat for the rest of their foreseeable future.
0: I know I'd kind of talk myself into, well, FSU is going to get to five or six wins and not be totally pathetic. And maybe that's better because they'll keep Taggart around longer, but no, I want them to lose every game and they might, they might. We'll see. Also side note about the turnover paraphernalia, all of the stupid, stupid stuff that people are doing. You just get made fun of. You have a backpack that, what is that doing for you? Unless you remind me you've got a, a bling chain that goes with their program. All the other stuff is so dumb. It's so dumb. Anyway, that's my two cents. Interesting game. Again, Arizona state, 21, Colorado, 28, Colorado. Are they, are they good? Are they sneaky? Good. Or are they just sneaky?
1: They're undefeated playing against nobody, but they're beating equal competition. I think mainly what this takes away from me is that again, the Herm Edwards experiment at Arizona state is in fact, not failing competent team. Their losses have been close. Colorado is good. They're definitely not bad. Uh, And when I say good, I mean like relative to the competition they're facing. They're not good on the national scale. They're ranked only because they're undefeated and they have to be. Uh, Keep in mind, they barely beat Nebraska, which kind of shows you where where they are in the world. But either way, you know, there's stuff happening in the Pac-12. And if you care to watch it, Colorado's a team that you'd want to pay attention to if you're looking for any kind of of outside-of-the-box dark horse.
0: Okay, Auburn, nine. Oof, the Gus Bus off the rails again. Mississippi State in a comeback win. Rebound win. They score 23. Hold Auburn to nine. Were you surprised by this?
1: I don't know what to answer to this one. These two teams before the season were supposed to be challenging for the SEC West. And both of them are feeling poorly about themselves. I continue as we had a fun discussion with last week about the Moorhead stock to think that I'm, I'm comfortable with him. I think he's a good hire. We talked about last week how he did not want to let Nick Fitzgerald be Nick Fitzgerald and that hurt him. This is a good sign if I'm an MSU fan because Nick Fitzgerald carried the ball 28 times for 195 yards in that game, Alan. I'm pretty sure Joe had went to the tape after the Florida game and said, I'm going to have to give up on Nick Fitzgerald being a passer. And as much as I hate that as a coach because I'm a passer, I'm going to have to do it. And he did it and it worked. And I think you're going to see that. Until Nick Fitzgerald gets broken down, he's going to be carrying the ball 25 plus times a game. That's that's how Dan Mullen went with him. That's how Moorhead's got to win with him. So if you're a Mississippi State fan, I think I feel pretty good now. I beat Auburn. That's a good win for me. I saw, I saw that my coach recognized he's got tremendous limitations with the quarterback. And maybe now I'm just hoping that I can get a guy in that fits his system to see what he's truly made of. But that's a, that's a good win for a reeling Mississippi State program. And that's a horrible, horrible loss for an Auburn team that had big expectations this year. That's really, for me, Alan, where all these questions go.
0: I guess we're on the alternating love Gus, fire Gus year, and this would be a fire Gus year, although he won't get fired. His buyout is insane. He'll be around there a little longer. Uh, You know, this is something I I picked up from you. If you want to talk about floor and ceiling, if you really want to capitalize the most on this season, it would be transforming Nick Fitzgerald into a passer because he's going to need that to hang with the best teams in the country, like Alabama. You probably can't beat Bama with him just running the ball, but if you can make him a real dual threat guy, you have a better shot. And I guess he got to the point, like you said, where he pivoted and said, all right, that ceiling is really not attainable. I've got to get the most out of this guy and and resurrect this season. And they did. But man, that's a tough one for Auburn. Notre Dame, 45, Virginia Tech.
1: 23,
0: I believe. Yes, 23.
1: Notre Dame is good. Not Alabama good because there's only Alabama. We really
0: want to have another Notre Dame-Alabama game where Bama wins 65-0 to or whatever that game was.
1: Can any team stay with Alabama? That's another question we can ask later. But Notre Dame is good. This is a good football team now. And this goes for all of you out there that have followed (laughs) Florida for a long time. Know that I love the quarterback position. I'm obviously very biased towards it, but this illustrates the huge difference that it makes. Notre Dame is barely beating Vanderbilt a couple of weeks ago. I mean, barely beating Vanderbilt, and now they are a juggernaut. What do they do? They change their quarterback. That is the only difference on the entire football team. There's a huge difference. So now, my believer in Notre Dame? Yes, I am. Do I hate that? Yes, I do. But they're good. Not Alabama good. But they are good as a real football team. Keep an eye on them. Uh, that, that's a team you should watch on the weekends to kind of get a gauge of how do you feel about the top five or six teams. Take a look at them. They're solid.
0: They are solid. And I, I think with their schedule this year, some of the teams that normally would be their toughest opponents are a little down, like USC, Stanford. So, yeah, maybe we're going to see Notre Dame in the playoff. We'll see. They're, they have one less game than than the conference champions. Wild, wild game.
1: Texas 48 Oklahoma forty-five. I love this podcast because after Texas lost to Maryland, you and I talked about whether we were on or off the Tom Herman train. And I'm pretty sure we both said on, I said, I was still definitely on. It was still year two. You get three years, the way he's recruiting. He's a fantastic coach. This by the way, folks is why you wait three years to see like, it's clear. This Texas team is improving drastically week to week. And you can't just snap judge a one game college football game, really for almost any coach, especially running the program. But This raises questions for Lincoln Riley. This, to me, is too early for Oklahoma to have lost to Texas in the rebuild of Texas. Now, Texas is talented. They've pulled a lot of recruits, but Oklahoma is a better team, top to bottom talent-wise. They had a much higher expectation for this season. I know their reaction to this was to fire Lincoln, Lincoln agrees Mike with Stoops, you and says, I've got to make a change. And and he did it right away, which shows that Lincoln is not messing around. That's an unacceptable result. But that is a interesting result. I think the Texas fans are on cloud nine right now, thinking that maybe for the first time in a long time, they're going to be the big dogs and Oklahoma might be secondary to them. So keep an eye on this one. This rivalry, I think, is only going to get better as these next couple of years go on. This will be interesting. I, I don't want to put too much
0: on this game because it is – like a Florida, Georgia, weird stuff happens. There's been frequent results over the last 10 years where the opposite team won. Basically the team that was counted out won, whether it was Oklahoma or Texas, Uh, you know, Riley, can he overcome this type of obstacle and this type of change on his coaching staff? You know, I think he probably wanted to fire Stoops last year. Couldn't because he got the job so late. They did really well in certain parts. You know, they made the playoff and didn't maybe want to rock the boat. But obviously, he was ready to pull the trigger as soon as like, uh, he felt like, okay, I can't take any more. All right, a very intriguing game. Kentucky 14, A&M 20 in overtime.
1: Kentucky proves to me they're real, which we knew. Six-point spread here, by the way, Alan. Vegas. That's uh-huh, all gotcha. You. And Jimbo Fisher proves he's elite to me. Again, all the Florida State fans for years that thought Jimbo Fisher was not good. All the Florida fans that thought Jimbo Fisher was not good. Looking at you, Tyler Rummery. Uh, Jimbo Fisher is excellent. He's excellent. This AM team is not that talented. And all he does is beat a team that nobody else has been able to beat. We're pretty good. We're ranked now. We're ranked 14th. We couldn't beat Kentucky. Mississippi State just beat Auburn. They couldn't beat Kentucky. AM does it. Barely. They escape. It's close. But regardless, Jimbo Fisher doing things. My takeaway on all these games we talked about, Alan, the SEC, which had the SEC least, the SEC East, by the way, the worst division since the playoff era, as far as like teams and record goes and basically non-existent on the national picture scale. And the SEC as a whole has significantly upgraded the coaches, which is a discussion we had a couple of years ago. Why is the SEC downward? The SEC now, the future looks much brighter, minus a couple of programs. In fact, it looks downright scary. It looks like it's going to be significantly harder than any other conference, like by a magnitude. So that's my thought. If Kentucky starts to play even kind of okay, all of a sudden you've got like eight teams every year, minus Alabama and Georgia, which are in their own tier. They're capable of beating each other in any given time. Good luck trying to win 10 games with that. Yeah. I would say the
0: SEC East is no longer the SEC least. I'm not that, you know, every team in there is ascendant. But Georgia playing as a premier team, Florida's improvement, Kentucky's turnaround. And then you got some teams like Missouri and South Carolina that compete with just about anybody. Now, of course, Tennessee is a failure and Vandy doesn't look much better. Um, but, yeah, this was interesting. Texas a and their two losses to Bama and Clemson. So uh, this was a big win for them because they needed to actually pick up some victories. You couldn't just say, well, they're good because they lost to really great teams. But this validates a little bit what Jimbo's doing. Okay, the rest of the SEC roundup. Alabama 65, Arkansas 31. Nick Saban not impressed with his defense on this one.
1: This one was a gut punch for me. (laughs) Alabama was a 35-point favorite. This is where I decided to put my money this past weekend. And uh, those of you that weren't following this closely, it was definitely a bad beat, if you will. Alabama scores to go up 65-24 with two minutes left. Arkansas decides to run the kickoff that's deep in the end zone out because why not? You're getting drubbed. He runs it back 80 freaking yards to the 20-yard line. Then they proceed to go really slowly, burning all the clock off before scoring a excruciating touchdown with 13 seconds left to have Alabama win by 34 by 34 points and Alabama missed an extra point. So, you know, all in all, that's why you have to bet for fun because otherwise you'll go crazy. Uh, it, I think Alabama's defense is the worst it's been under Nick Saban, but I think that's very miragey. Uh, they're not playing their starters even as long as they normally would. And the offense is scoring way faster than it normally would. And teams are are almost like so out of the game so fast that they relax and move the ball more. I, I mean, really it's weird, but I don't think there's a concern for that. I think when they play a real game, that defense will be fine.
0: Well, they, Alabama is playing faster and scoring more, so more possessions creates more possessions for other teams, more opportunities for them to score. I don't know if this is a vintage Alabama defense, but they do have a few question marks, especially with some injuries at corner. But Nick Saban you know, wants to keep the rat poison out, so he'll keep he'll keep talking up the opponents, keep down playing his guys. Something to keep an eye on, though, in that regard. UL Monroe, Monroe 21, Ole Miss 70.
1: Anything to see here? I think Matt Luke continues to do a good job there. I mean, they don't have a defense, but all in all, I, I'd be happy if I was an Ole Miss fan. You're you're kind of slapped into the dungeon for a while, and you're you're entertaining. You score a ton of points. You got some good receivers. Yeah.
0: yeah. You, beat, you beat up UL Monroe, and then you brick it against anybody who's halfway legit. All right. The game we're about to talk about, the team we're about to talk about, Vandy
1: thirteen UGA forty one. This game was at one point in time with two minutes left to go in the first half, fourteen to six. Yeah, and Vanderbilt had driven the ball down down Georgia's side of the field like oh, every time they had it. Um, they is, were dangerous. Is Georgia
0: just asleep at the wheel here because they couldn't
1: couldn't quite score? So Georgia now is starting a theme where their first half performances are not good, and then they crush you in the second half. I know that Kirby's concerned about it. He's continuing to talk about it, but they can't seem to get it right. They cannot seem to figure out how to put together a, a full football game, a full 60 minutes. Uh, they drubbed Vanderbilt. The, Georgia is excellent on film, but regardless, do I think they're they're weaker? No, I think they're just having a hard time continually beating up against inferior opponents. Vandy on film, I will say, and we're going to talk about this in this game. Vandy looks improved to me athletically across the board, uh, but Georgia Clowned them when it came to talent. That's what I noticed the most from this game.
0: I, I don't know UGA. The meat of their schedule is coming up, starting with LSU this week. I think we'll learn more about them moving forward. But I, I don't know. You're playing Vandy. You've already, you made it to the national championship game last year. You're looking ahead. You still win handily. I, I guess if you're a Kirby, you're frustrated. But if I'm a UGA
1: fan, I'm not that worried yet. You shouldn't be because if you're thinking to yourself. Be frustrated about it. Let me put this in perspective for you. Spoiler alert. Florida is favored by a whopping seven points this weekend. Seven. So if you're Georgia, you're winning by 30 and you're frustrated. We're favored by seven. Vanderbilt, just going to put it out there. Just saying. For all of you that think Georgia's not that good, just keep sleeping. Keep sleeping. All right. Let's thank a few more patrons. We've got a company to thank. Eccentricity. Thank you so much for your contribution. We appreciate that. Warren Bucknam, Matthew Brigman, Alexandra Smith, also longtime uh, supporter of the show. Great writer as well out there in California. Thanks for supporting us, all the stuff you've done for the pod. And then David Meadows, thanks so much for being our patrons. We really appreciate that.
0: All right, James, are you ready to talk about Vandy? They're three and three. Only, yes, as you said, a seven-point underdog. They you know, were competitive last year. Does that seem low to you? Uh, you know what? This game is going to be at noon. 11 a.m. start for our players. Sleepy Vanderbilt after a big LSU win. you got Georgia coming off the bye week. I'm a little concerned. That, that's what's <laughs> yeah. happening. And yeah.
1: that, I was going to say, this is great. So that that's exactly what's going on with Vegas, right? And it's always good to look at the Vegas trends. Vegas puts a lot, and I mean a lot of stock, in what happens with the majority of the players on the rosters pass games against each other. So if you look at last year, Florida wins 38, 24 at home. And the year before that we win like nine to seven at Vanderbilt, right? Then the year before that we win another 10 to seven game. So by all functioning capacity, our upperclassmen have played two games that were 10 points or less against each other. And then one game last year, we won by 14, there was a close game all the way until the end. So, What does that mean for this game? It means that essentially they think that that Vanderbilt is a lot closer to Florida than maybe the national media would think. Maybe even you and I would think. We're going to unpack on film, Alan, what the film looks like for this kind of game. I will also give a second spoiler alert here before we get into the talent look that this is the most talented, quote-unquote, Vanderbilt team recruiting-wise they've had. They had their best class ever last year. So they got some young guys that are talented. Before we get in the profile, keep that in mind, but then listen to the gap between these two teams talent-wise, and then consider the seven-point spread. All right. You recognize this guy, Derek Mason, I want to say
0: embattled, but not totally out of it. His fifth year. Andy Ludwig, his fourth year. He's been there a while, since 2010. Jason Tarver, his first year. You know, this guy is an NFL guy, but his first time serving in college football. They've got 12 returning starters, seven on offense, five on defense. Yeah, their overall composite, 45th, has been moving up a little bit. You know, is that good for Vanderbilt? Is that average for Vanderbilt? Yeah, there is a little bit of a talent gap. Only a seven-point spread. James, before we make our predictions, our keys to victories, when you looked at the film, when you watched their offense, tell us what you're picking up.
1: And this is where this comes from, right? So you could stop right there and say, well, "Wait a minute, they're 45th and UF is 12th." Last week LSU was sixth, and you know we're 12th. And you can kind of go through each of these games we played and look at it, right? Kentucky, we were much more talented than Kentucky was, like you know 20 something from a crawl. So this is by far the least talented SEC team we've played, and yet it's only a seven point spread. So when you look at on film. There's some reasons as to why this is. So they are a pro style offense with a senior quarterback and Kyle Schirmer, who's been around the block. He's a very smart quarterback. Um, they are are very balanced, 50% run, 50% pass, and they're essentially gonna gonna run what any traditional pro style team will run. They're gonna run some some power running as well as some spread passing concepts. So nothing crazy there, but. This is, Allen, the most competent passing team we've faced by far. And they're not exactly a vertical threat team with Kyle Schirmer, but they will hit intermediate passing windows 10 to 20 yards down the field. Uh, When you look at them on film, of course, they're good at running the football. That tends to be what they excel at every year. This year, not as good since Ralph Webb has departed. The guy that we've talked about every year we had the podcast until this year. It's kind of weird not to talk about uh, Ralph Webb. But primarily on film, what you notice is Schirmer really loves to attack the middle of the field. And he, he throws almost all of his passes to two receivers, really only two. Uh, his his tight end Jared Pinkney, but the extremely heavily targeted. Uh, and I don't even know how to actually pronounce this guy's name perfectly, but it's Elijah Lipscomb. Lipscomb. Yeah, it's Elijah is what I believe, but it's Lipscomb, uh, number sixteen, Elijah Lipscomb. Who's a big talent for them? Yeah, us. big talent. Had uh, I think eighteen targets in a game earlier this year, and he's got like fifty, whatever he has triple the catches of anyone else. So he gets the ball a ton. Which this is going to be really fun to watch for us, Alan, because you know who's going to draw that. It's going to be it's going to be Marco Henderson getting that. I mean, not Marco Henderson. Sorry, what am CJ I combining himself. guys? CJ yeah, Henderson just, getting that. It's coverage, one Uber. Coo- it's corner. one super corner. Uh, but CJ Henderson is going to draw that. That's going to be, I think, for me personally, the most fun matchup I've had on defense to watch all year long. That's going to be fantastic. They throw the ball to him unabashedly. So this will be our first, in my opinion, real. Passing team challenge. Alice, um, LSU was a, was a moderate one. Uh, Vandy, even though the numbers don't suggest they're like a really strong passing team on film, they're by far the most competent. So this is a good test for our defense. It's a good weekend for us to see where we really are against a team like this. Uh, and I think that it will be a, a team that we have to run uh, more of a base 3-4 defense with. I don't know how often, unless it's an obvious passing situation, that we're going to roll out four down linemen like we have been these past two games against Mississippi State and LSU. We're going to have to play more of our linebackers. And you and I both know that outside of David Reese and Bojan Joseph, it seems to be a cliff of who's next there with productivity. There's not a lot of production coming from those other guys. So it should be intriguing on the offensive side of the ball. Yeah, you might see some of the
0: stuff that we tried to do early on against Kentucky where we're keeping an extra safety or corner and using them in run support. Kentucky road graded us when we did that, but you might see, you know, us return to more of that philosophy. It'll be interesting to see how we handle what Vandy's going to try to do on offense. Okay. When you look at the defense, what do you see there?
1: So they're a, they're a three, four defense, but what's interesting is their new coordinator spent a million years in the NFL being a four, three coordinator. So all that means is they're just more multiple Derek Mason who really was the defensive coordinator for a while. You know, once upon a time, we did a podcast when he took over the job as defensive coordinator. He's actually gone the furthest to remove himself this season. He hired a guy that he really truly has turned the defense over to. Uh, and why is that, Alan? Because they were awful on defense last year. So I think he had to make a change. I have to imagine this was a change that kind of came from the athletic department itself. Maybe not so much Derek Mason. They said, hey, listen, if you want to stick with this job, you're going to have to outsource this. So they brought in a guy who put a tremendous emphasis on turnovers. In fact, uh, there's kind of some fun stories about how he does the old high school gimmick where everyone's got to carry a ball around. They try to strip it from each other in class. He has photos of of loose balls all over the locker room and everything else. But it's working. They're generating a lot of turnovers on defense. So for whatever reason, they're trending way higher than they were in the past three or four years. So that is what they do. They're very opportunistic. Numbers-wise, they're very middling. Uh, they struggle significantly to stop anybody running the ball, which is exactly what happened last year as well. So good opponents have rushed on them for whatever they wanted. Georgia gouged them in the run game, uh, but they have been opportunistic, like we said, generating turnovers. So one thing that Georgia had a lot of success with against Vanderbilt that we don't really utilize too often, we're isolating their running backs against Vanderbilt's linebackers and making them run sideline to sideline on the swing passes. We just don't really employ that kind of tactic but maybe that's the wrinkle we use this week every week we've had one it'll be very interesting to see what we do if there is a wrinkle keep an eye on that one see if we throw four or five more of those than we normally do uh their three best defenders are probably their linebacker josh smith their cornerback maybe their only true nfl player uh joe juan williams and then their safety ladarius wiley their safeties are not very good they've been struggling uh but ladarius is, is sort of their veteran captain back there so Nothing on film that would scare me. Nothing we have not seen before. Their linebackers are slower than what we faced. Certainly if we had success against LSU, we should be able to have success against Vanderbilt. But uh, it will be interesting to see how we choose to attack this defense versus what we, we knew we had with LSU, which is a man-to-man kind of defense. This one's going to be a little bit more balanced, a little more confusing, uh, more, more combo coverage, <coughs> things like that.
0: Let's talk about the injuries. I don't think there are any
1: which is amazing, right? Yeah, the Gators
0: have been very healthy once the season got started.
1: I don't know how Dan Mullen's doing that, but I appreciate it. We've been a heavily injured team. And let's spend one second talking about penalties because it's fun. We continue to be amongst the worst in college football. We had 11 penalties last weekend. It's that
0: Gator logo on the field. Just it's can't help something, it.
1: right? And then Vanderbilt, like LSU, forces teams into a ton of penalties. So we will see if we have 10 or more penalties. I would be surprised if we didn't. Again this week because that's what we average. So at some point in time, you are what you average. All okay. Right. let me lead you through this Yeah. Okay. because I've been talking a lot. I'm going to take a step back and let you have the stage here. So game prediction, keys to victory. What is your key to victory against a Vanderbilt team that's played us rather feistily for the past several years?
0: Yeah, so I feel like what we want to do against Vanderbilt, we're going to want to run the ball. And you should be able to. But that's not really where we've lived, is where we just line up and go at you. Now, we do attack you in the run game, but we're better when we're deceptive. I don't know that we have the offensive line that we're just going to say, hey, we're going to run the ball, stop us. Um, And so do we see – are we over 250 yards in rushing, and does a lot of that come in the first half? I think this is going to be a closer game than we want. I don't know that we're going to execute on all the things that we want to. Um, it's going to be tricky. And then on the other side of the ball, you know, I think we're going to have a chance to put a ton of pressure on them because I don't think that we're going to have to respect the run game. We're going to be able to play a little. We're going to be finding our nickel. We're going to be able to play a little dime maybe too. I don't know. That, that leads me to believe that we're going to be able to shut down the middle of the field on them, that we won't have to expose as many linebackers in coverage and that our guys rushing the passer are going to be able to do some damage because they're not going to have to respect the run game as much without Ralph Webb or somebody really dangerous back there. So I think the key there is do we limit them to basically like zero rushing yards in our base defense, you know, not actually zero. But do, do we have to move out of a nickel to stop them running? And then they might abuse us a little bit. Now, we're not going to move out of nickel willingly. So that means they're going to have success. If they're having success running the ball, that puts us at a
1: disadvantage. So Vanderbilt is interesting, uh, s- sort of summarizing the film. They have a running back by committee led by the Illinois transfer, uh, transfer Vaughn, who's a big dude. And he's quick. They gouged Georgia for three or four explosive runs in that game. And I think when I think about this game, if an inferior team like Vanderbilt is going to beat Florida – It normally comes one of two ways. It comes by excessive turnovers. I feel very comfortable we're not going to do that. Uh, I think at this point in time, we are what we are. We're not going to turn the ball over three and four times a game. It's just not going to happen, not the way we play. So, what's the other example that could happen? You get hit with big explosive plays. That's possible. Vanderbilt's capable of doing that. Uh, They have a couple of matchups we haven't had to face before. So they have a tight end who can threaten our linebackers. Our linebackers have struggled to cover for the most part. Uh, we have not had to deal with a linebacker really at all that could that could hurt us. Ten- I mean, Kentucky had a great linebacker, but they just they don't throw the ball this year. So that's tight end. A, yeah, I mean, tight end. Sorry, linebacker. Tight end. They don't, they don't throw the ball this year, so that was not a concern. He gouged us two years ago. So tight ends have gotten us in the past is what I'm trying to say. So I'm going to look at two things. I'm going to look at explosive plays for Vanderbilt. I think if we hold them to five plays – that's pretty generous, by the way – five plays – of 20 yards or less in this game, I think we'll win. And that's a lot. I'm I'm allowing a lot of variance there. Normally I might say two or three against a good team, but we're going to say five plays there. And then I think tight end wise, I think we have to limit Pinkney to just a couple of catches. He can't consistently get behind our linebackers for sort of those, uh, those skinny posts or those seam routes where he takes advantage of maybe a weak spot of our team. That's how we're going to get off the field on third down. I don't have a fear about Henderson's matchup with their number one wide receiver. So I think for me, it's going to be explosive plays for their offense and our ability to limit Pinkney, their tight end, catching passes in this game. I think if we do those two things, we should be able to come up with a victory. Uh, how much will be the question? You went first last week. I'll go first this week. Gators everybody by 7 on the road, 11 a.m. game. We typically don't score a lot in these games. Um, we've been scoring about 30 points a game. I feel like we're going to get somewhere around there again, just by sheer manufacturing it. So I think Florida's going to win this game 30-17. Uh, to 17. Feels like a good score to me. I think this game will be close. I think this game will be close for a while. I don't think that's like a thirty to seventeen where we're up thirty to ten or thirty to three and we're cruising. I think this game will be competitive. Agreed. I I think I'm pretty worried about the early start
0: and the hangover from this game. It's a big emotional game. Trying to get college players to level up emotionally every game and to be peaking is almost impossible. They I know that they're looking ahead to Georgia. No matter what anybody says, I think it'll be tight too. I, I'm thinking about the 10-point range, so I'm going to be kind of close to here, and I'm going to say 27-17 Gators. But yeah, don't be surprised if this is tight into the fourth quarter. Um, I'll be really interested to see what Grantham does with Henderson and Lipscomb. Does he move him? Does he follow him? Are they playing basically left and right side? If Trey Dean is getting burnt, maybe you'll see him deviate from his preferred method. Um, That'll be something for you to watch. Um, again, this is going to be a test for this team, not because of how talented Vandy is, because situationally, this is a challenging moment for the team. Um, but a veteran to coach like Dan Mullen knows that. And my hope is that they'll be prepared.
1: Yeah. The final note, you mentioned the dime, Alan, and, and this is an interesting note. Vanderbilt will run a lot of four and five receiver sets, which we have not faced almost any this season, which will force you into the dime where essentially you really only have one linebacker on the field. Uh, we don't do a lot of that. Uh, typically, that would be David Reese, but David Reese is not a great cover linebacker. So pay attention to what we choose to do in their four and five wide sets. It'll be interesting to see how we handle that just as a, as a fun football.
0: Well, we don't have a lot of extra corners.
1: We don't. So that's why that'll be interesting. If I'm Vanderbilt, I'm looking at the four and five wide sets as a, as a base personnel to run, especially if I'm on second down, knowing I can flex straight to third down. I could run or pass out of that. I can, think that's something they could Can
0: they block well enough? with limited protection or does polite and Jefferson blow them up? That's going to be a, a really interesting key to the game. I, I think you're right.
1: Yeah, and that's the question, but fun one to watch there. If you're looking, if you're, you know, if you've become a football ex person, if we've been able to convince you to pay attention more to the chess side, that will be the most interesting chess piece going on team to team in this particular game. All righty. As is our custom, we're going to finish the show looking at the national games. I've really come to love analyzing all these games each week, Alan. It just makes it more fun to have to put ourselves on the record with what we think is going to happen. And we have got a great slate for you this weekend. Unfortunately for all of us, there are a bunch of great games at 3.30 p.m. So if you're like me and you've got multiple televisions on the wall, you're okay. If not, find a place to view these. Let me start with Texas A&M traveling to South Carolina. A&M favored by 2.5. I'm going to ride
0: the Jimbo Fisher train here. I feel like they proved themselves to me a lot in that Kentucky game. They looked competent against Clemson and you know showed decently against Alabama. So I don't think that USC is going to keep up with them offensively.
1: Yeah, Kellen Mond has been struggling, which I'm imagining is why this line is the way that it is, but I'm taking Jimbo versus Muschamp for sure and the 2.5 points. Michigan State on the road against Penn State. Michigan State's struggling, losing to Northwestern last weekend. Penn State favored by 13.5.
0: Yeah, I think Michigan State is too limited offensively, I don't think that they're going to be able to keep pace with Penn
1: State unless a lot of weird stuff happens. Agreed, like a Penn State cover here as well. UCF, maybe their toughest game of the whole season, minus 4.5 on the road at Memphis, a rematch of the championship last year.
0: This might be wishful thinking, but I'm going to take Memphis here. Uh, They've not been stellar this year, but they're going to be hyped for this game. This is a big one. Um, Yeah, again, maybe wishful thinking, but I'll take Memphis.
1: UCF seems to be a juggernaut. I, I, I'm i sticking with the favorites thus far. I'm going to stick with UCF. Missouri on the road against Alabama. The life of an Alabama fan, Alan. Favored by 28, 28. points. I wonder if Nick Saban will have to get the students to go to this one as well. Probably. Man, I'm going to say
0: I'm going to have to take Mizzou. That's too many points for me.
1: Arkansas covered, so I'll say Mizzou covers. Three weeks in a row now that Alabama has not covered the spread. I think Nick Saban is upset. I think that they win by more than 28 in this one. West Virginia minus six on the road at a place that's always very hard to win, Iowa State. We're going to learn a lot, a lot about the
0: Mountaineers. I think they respond. If this was a little higher, I I would take the clones, but six feels about right. I'll, I'll stick with the Mountaineers.
1: I like West Virginia in this game. I think they are for real. I think they laid a, a little bit of an egg last week. And yeah, to they rebound. Play. I think that's probably the best thing for them. Wisconsin, who's just been a very disappointing team this season, on the road against Michigan. Michigan favored by seven and a half.
0: I think this is a game that Michigan wins. I, this is. Cl- I think it's going to be close though. Seven and a half is a little too high. I'm gonna. I'll take the points
1: here in Wisconsin. I can't figure this one out. This this is a really. Interesting line for me. Wisconsin has struggled more than you would expect on offense. Michigan's defense is very, very good, although has not been as good as some people thought it would be, especially against the run. 7.5 seems like a lot to give up, but Michigan, I think, is getting better. So I'm going to take Michigan to cover. So far, I've been on every single favorite. Colorado on the road against USC. We talked about Colorado earlier. This is the first talented team that they're playing, and USC is favored by 7 at home.
0: This is intriguing. I I don't know that Colorado, I don't know if they're legit, but I don't know if that USC is either. But I'm not convinced that Colorado travels yet. That seven, again, is kind of high. If it was seven and a half, I probably would go Colorado, but I'm going to go USC here.
1: USC is so much more talented than Colorado, but USC, I don't believe in anything Clay Hilton is doing there. I don't believe it. So I'm going to take Colorado on the points here. So this is my first underdog. All right, Georgia on the road against LSU, 3.30 p.m. game. Georgia favored by seven. Yeah, only seven.